Stopping Scotland Scammers podcast is a broad stance media production brought to you by the Royal Bank of Scotland. I'm Jackie Brambles and this is episode four. This podcast is not a repeat of the Stopping Scotland Scammers that you may have seen on TV, but it is inspired by it, digging deeper into what it means to be scammed the devastating repercussions it can have on our mind. I was coming home every night for work and going straight to bed. Straight to bed, pulling the covers over my head, just trying to... Block it out. Yep. Our body... Said, you better take the A&E, and that is when I had a heart attack. And the way that we see the world and our place within it, often in stark contrast to one another. I've got 300 friends, but I know about... A hundred. Violated. It's like a violation of my privacy. Privacy is dead anyway. I mean, this, this boat has sailed. You know, we're done. It's over. We have two doctors in the house for our final podcast. Yeah, I mean, th- these are very significant stressors. Um, and they trigger a number of reactions in the body and in the brain. That was Dr. Antonis Kasoulis from the Mental Health Foundation. And we'll be hearing much more from him on the consequences of trauma in just a minute. Also, our weekly expert on internet fraud, Dr. David Moditz, is back. It's simple not to be ever scammed. It's very simple. Basically, essentially what you need to do is... You'll have to stay with us in order to hear exactly what it is you need to do to never be scammed. But first, I really wanted to highlight in this episode the human collateral of scams. Aside from the financial impact of being defrauded, which for many is significantly life-changing for the worst, it's the emotional body blow that often proves hardest to recover from. Make no mistake, being scammed is more than being tricked out of money. It messes with people's minds. It crushes confidence. It depletes our faith in humanity and it leaves this wretched scar of shame, this sense that people have contributed to their own victimization and are therefore at fault and so perhaps not worthy of our compassion. That's what Dr. Moritz calls the secondary victimization of scams. People are victimized in the first instance by the scammers and then become victims of the harsh judgment of others which just isn't right. Victim blaming is never right. I've spent time with a large number of people who've been conned over the course of making the past three series of Stopping Scotland Scammers. And I can tell you, nobody I met got off scot-free emotionally. Nobody was able to shake it off and quickly move on. For some, the emotional trauma affected their mental health. And for others, there was a direct physical response, which in Arthur's case was extremely serious. Arthur was scammed out of £3,000 when he went in search of a boat to mess about on the water with during his retirement. The scam almost cost him his life. One night, I got a toothache, and then I got pains in my chest, and then I got pains down my arm as I sort of came down the stairs and I said, went back up and said, you better take me to A&E, which she did, and that is when I had a heart attack. It was about two to three weeks afterwards. That was very upsetting at the time. 
I love him to bits. And um, for a while there, I thought I was going to lose him. I'm 99.9% certain that it was this particular thing, the anxiety, the annoyance of myself having got scammed that brought the heart attack on. We hear stories like Arthur's a lot, don't we, in terms of stress causing a serious physical consequence. So I wanted to find out conclusively if that was just a common myth or if there was actual scientific evidence to back it up. Dr Antonis Kasoulis works for the Mental Health Foundation and told me about the body-mind connection. An actual traumatising event of that extent um, could lead uh, to a very significant stress reaction. Now, um, adrenaline is, um, and cortisol are hormones that usually um, they, they can be good for you. So if you, if you are in a stressful situation... Um, you can try to flee that, uh, say there's an earthquake happening, you know, there's, there's a fire in your building. You, you have um, an increase of adrenaline in your body and this helps you essentially get out of the building as, you know, as quickly as possible while retaining um, a clear mind as to, you know, what the next step will be. That's your kind but, of fight or flight response, yes? Exactly, yeah. exactly. That's the fight or flight. Um, but if you have... Um, continuous uh, triggers of increases of adrenaline in your body or cortisol or other hormones. Um, and if they are sustained over um, a long period of time, you know, over weeks or months or years and sometimes, um, then these um, cause contraction of um, the heart muscle. Um, sometimes, you know, you, sometimes we say you know, a person had a heart attack where, you know, at the, at the moment they experienced a very traumatic event, for example, they had a car accident, you know, and, and they died because of a heart attack or, or they were attacked, you know, very suddenly and they died uh, because of a heart attack because this was an extreme contraction of the heart muscle. They would usually have, they would usually have an underlying condition, but it's still an extreme reaction uh, of the heart muscle to these, um, to this uh, extreme increase of the stress hormones. So, it's not inconceivable for a person that, that experiences this level of anxiety and stress and the combination of the other factors to actually have a heart attack um, because of the um, physical reaction in their body. We use the word trauma conversationally, don't we? It's, it's kind of yeah. a, it's a colloquialism for something bad that's happened, something was traumatic or that was a trauma, just going to the shops because it was busy or, or the plane was delayed, that was a trauma. But actually yeah. trauma is, is a medical condition. Yes, yes, that's true. Uh, there is, I mean, it, it is a bit of a social term and uh, it, has, it has many connotations. Um, in the sense of, you know, the medical uh, literature, uh, trauma can refer to either um, physical trauma, which is usually an injury, um, or psychological trauma, which is, um, to an extent, the, the simplistic um, definition, injury, you know, to your soul or your mind. So essentially, the, what trauma does, and, and the reason why this word, you know, ends up being used quite often is that um, it triggers a reaction. So if it's a, if, if it's a physical injury, if it's, a, for example, a musculoskeletal injury, it triggers a reaction which you know, could crush a bone, could open the skin or whatever. If it's psychological trauma, it could trigger um, stress, it could trigger very significant anxiety, it could trigger depression. So it could trigger a number of um, uh, mental health problems especially to people who may be um, predisposed because of genetic factors or whatever else. So trauma then is a real biological response to a stressful event. 
Dr. Kasoulis told me that he works with refugees fleeing war-torn countries, many of whom, as you can imagine, are so traumatized that they suffer constantly from PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. So I wondered where on the scale of all things traumatic, a scam, a deception, a con, might rate, if at all. Yeah, I mean, these are very significant stressors. Um, and they trigger a number of reactions in the body and in the brain um, that eventually could lead to, to anxiety or depression or low mood. The problem with, with psychological trauma is that uh, if, it's, if there's no therapy, if, it, if there's no initial treatment, then it can lead to quite serious symptoms like depression, withdrawal, chronic anxiety. And if you add to that the social and, and um, sort of financial aspects, which is, is the shame, is the stigma, um, is the um, uh, the financial concerns, the um, economic stressors, um, then these are all individually uh, quite significant triggers and risk factors for mental illness uh, and, and more generally mental health problems. So it's trauma caused by scams, by this sort of scam, is both a trigger in itself and it also leads to a number of other um, issues that are additional triggers and stressors. Very hard to generalize, um, but um, anybody who was the victim of any kind of crime from sort of being pickpocketed to being assaulted, any, that's, that's, that's a trauma to one degree or another. That's a natural human reaction. Um, would most people manage to get, get over a trauma or are most people actually affected almost permanently by something like that? Uh, it varies uh, first uh, on depending on the person uh, and second depending on the actual event. Um, if we take the person first, uh, we are all born with a specific genetic risk, if you like, a specific family risk uh, that runs in our genes. Um, and some people face a number of um, events that can be traumatized during their life. Um, and this could lead to them developing mental health problems. But we start from different baseline. Right. We start from, from different risk. So there is the combination of genetic risk, family risk, with the social, uh, let's, say, let's say social and environmental risk. Imagine that, like, um, say, say it's a glass of water. So if someone is born with a very low genetic risk, then they would only, you know, their, their glass would only have like a bit of water in it. Um, and then you need a number of events, a number of stressors and traumatizing events to happen in your life so that, the, you know, that um, glass fills up. So when it fills up, um, we would say that it's, you know, you are developing a mental illness, a mental health problem. Right. Others, others are born with a glass that is half full, you know, that is uh, almost full. So it could be one actual event that could trigger a problem. Um, and then we have all the positive um, factors that happen in our life, all the positive events, um, like having a family, being in a relationship, uh, having a job, being in a stable position, um, which are the protective factors. So these, let's say, that take out water from your from your glass so that it doesn't fill up. So it's a combination of you know how a person is born and wh what they experience, and obviously different events have um, a different effect on people. So now. An online scam like that, you know, to, to the extent of um, losing substantial amount of your savings, uh, plus the social stigma that comes with it um, and the shame, can be actually quite a traumatizing event. So 
if you add that to a person that has maybe genetic risk and maybe they don't have a lot of protective factors, maybe they're not in a family or in a stable relationship, or maybe they're not in a in a job that they enjoy, for example, or maybe they're not they don't have enough friends or neighbors that they can have a chat with, um, then it's a combination that eventually might lead to um, to a crisis. Of all the people that I've met during the making of Stopping Scotland Scammers, the one that stays with me the most is Arlene. A vivacious, attractive, successful ball of energy who was tricked into believing that her broadband provider had mistakenly credited her account with £4,000, which, under enormous pressure from the manipulative scammer, she hastily returned without realising that it was actually her money that had been removed from her savings account and put into her current account. They did it to her twice before a friend, seeing how distraught Arlene was, thankfully stepped in. When I was in my friend's office and my friend was phoning the fraud team and I was speaking to the fraud team at the same time as they were moving money in my account. From your still, savings account, they were, still there. they were still doing it? They were still there. It's one of the worst feelings I, have, I think I've ever experienced in my life. The feeling that you've been yeah. scammed? I'm violated. It's like a violation of my privacy. These people knew everything. I had to go to the doctors, I got sleeping tablets. Um, because you kept thinking about it at night, you couldn't I sleep? I couldn't sleep. I never slept for days. Never slept for days. And I lost half a stone in five days. I was coming home every night for work and going straight to bed. Straight to bed pulling the covers over my head, just trying to... Block it out. Yep. Dr Kasoulis says that nobody from the outside looking in can imagine what the person who has been victimised is going through. And he has these words of advice. Bear in mind that it's how an event is perceived. It's not just how, you know, someone um, on the outside uh, sees that, but it's how the individual perceives that, you know, as, as to how serious it is. Mm -hmm. Um then um, it's, uh, you can try to, uh, to go back into your normal life, go back into your day-to-day -day life and see uh, if you can operate in the same way. I think if after a few weeks, um, say one or two weeks, if you're stopping, if you have stopped um, getting pleasure or um, finding interest in the, in the activities that you previously um, were interested in, uh, then that's a very serious sign that you could uh, slip into a depressive episode or, or an anxiety episode. It's not a good reaction to just uh, um, close up in yourself because you en end up being isolated. If an event is extremely traumatizing, I wouldn't, I wouldn't wait a day to advise, you know, refer someone to, to seek professional help. And you can find more help and information at www.mentalhealth.org.uk. In the final part of this episode, we're going to talk about generational differences when it comes to living life online. Our expert in the psychology of internet fraud, Dr. David Moditz, a specialist in online deception and the psychology of persuasion, as a research associate in the computer lab at Cambridge University, looks into the myths, the facts, and the inconvenient truths. First up, we're myth-busting. Most people, when asked, would say that the elderly are the most vulnerable online demographic. So the issue here is not age, to be clear. Because, I mean, so 
my father, who is who was 80 years old a fortnight ago, um, you know, he's a retired professor. So for most of his life, you know, he spent, you know, he was, um, you know, using email, um, you know, spent most of his time online, collaborated, etc., etc. Right. So he's an older generation, but you know, he's using the internet constantly. Um, so it's not about age. It's about exposure, let's say. It's about the usage patterns. And that kind of, it, it puts it into a different light. Because what it turns out, and that was a, actually some European research they did, um, you know, large demographic scale research. And it's it's connected to educational levels more than to age. So obviously, you know, the older you are, the more likely you are to be educated, if at all. Um, but it's the educational level that actually influences how much time you spend online. You see, the, the, because it turns out that, you know, people who are more educated uh, use Internet more. And so they're exposed more. So age has nothing to do with it. And following on from that supposition that actually education leads to more use of the Internet, which in turn exposes the user to a higher likelihood of being defrauded. Well, nobody uses the internet more than the younger generation. They're the digital natives. They have never known a world without Facebook. And for them, the internet can be many things, such as a platform for spreading positivity. Everyone has a platform. I like to use mine for body positivity and feminism, things like that. A cool place to hang out and play games with friends. I really enjoy gaming because I get to talk to a lot of people. We just we hop on at night and we all play uh, games together and it's, it's fun. But it's most certainly a place in which the concept of privacy isn't just valueless, it just has no relevance. If someone will send me a friend request, um, I'll go into it and I'll just accept because I think if someone's looked for me then they must know me. I've got 300 friends but I know about 100. The topic of privacy introduced a parental can of worms into my conversation with Dr. Moditz. You, you mentioned privacy and you mentioned, you know, how younger people have a different attitude towards it. I mean, if you talk to people here in this corridor and I tend to agree with them, I mean, privacy is dead anyway. I mean, this, this boat has sailed. You know, we're done. It's over. So, so the question is, is not at all how to preserve your privacy. You don't have it anymore. Um, the question actually is, do you believe that everybody should know everything about everybody else? Or do you think that, you know, Sergey Brin or Eric Schmidt, the Google guys, should know everything about you while you don't know anything about them? That's the only question, if you see what I mean. Yeah, no, I do. And, and that's, that's kind of a very a broader overview. But the practicality of it in everyday life, I mean, just I, I'm a parent and I've got, you know, a 10 year old and 11 year old who, yes. who are badgering me to, you know, get accounts on social on the different social yeah. media channels. Yeah. And at the moment, I'm, I'm holding fire, I'm holding them off by you know saying, well, you're not allowed to till you're 13 or 14. So yes. it's against yeah. the rules. So no, you can't. And that and that's my defense at the moment. But I'm kind of clamoring. I, I want to keep them off it, and, yeah. and they're dying to get on it. And we're just completely yeah. at loggerheads because <laughs> they don't well, see anything is... that could possibly be wrong about that, and I see everything that could be wrong about that. <laughs> well, to me, it's, so I have a, a five and a half year old. I mean, she would clearly state it's and a half. 
She's so <laughs> and <laughs> and you know she's so basically I did create an email account for her so that you know when she's using it she's old enough she can use it uh, and this is all still waiting for me the things that you're describing yeah obviously um, so my at my personal attitude towards this is um, you know by the time you know she can legally have a Facebook account I, you know I won't stop her um, it's basically it's more the idea is more to to inform them, you know, to talk to them about this. Um, however, I make it a point, you know, even if you looked at, if you checked at my, let's say, Facebook page, right. you know, my daughter is not on any of the photos. Yeah. She is, there are sometimes people who would post her online um, and we would immediately ask them either to remove the photo or detag her. Yes. Um, and my issue is not as much... Um, you know, this, um, my fear for her, but I want this to be her choice. If you see what I mean. Right. Yeah. So, because, you know, by the time she's 16 or 17, you know, there will be a, there will be a boy, you know, who I'm sure I, who I'm sure I'll hate. Um, <laughs> and, and, you know, at one point in time, she'll come home and her mother will be showing all those photos of, of her, you know, or basically the boy will go online and will see the photos of her eating carrot for the first time. Right. Yeah. You, you don't, you don't want to kind of steal that away from her. Yeah. So basically I don't care if she shows people, you know, how, you know, the movie of her eating the carrot for the first time, but I want this to be her choice. You see, it's not my choice. I do, get that. I do get that, show. but I challenge you and I are going to have a conversation in five years <laughs> when, she's, when she's badgering you because I I mean, I, I, I just feel that, that it just changes the nature of how you live and how you experience things. If my daughter's experience of, let's say, climbing a tree in the, in yeah. the outdoors, in the sunshine – needs to be captured on a photograph and posted on Instagram to make it worthwhile, that yeah. kind of changes how you live. It's like, if no one's watching, why should I dance? Do you know what I mean? I understand completely. However, you know, my, my argument here would just be that this has not started happening with the invention of the internet or the invention of social media, just to be clear. So, because, so I'll give you an example. I have a, I ride a motorcycle and, um, me and a friend of mine, we were in Sardinia in Italy at one point in time, and we stopped at this, this was, there was this beautiful lake and, you know, it was beautiful, like, you know, summer, early summer, it was, you know, everything was, um, you know, there were flowers blooming all over the place. And we stopped and I looked at the thing and I was kind of like, oh, this is beautiful. And the guy kind of, you know, looked around and he said, well, yeah, yeah, I photographed this already the last time I was here, let's move on. <laughs> right. You see? Yeah. So, 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 and I was kind of like, okay, so for you, if you didn't photograph this, it didn't happen. And this was, you know, 10 years ago, at least. Yeah. So, so it's not new. It's, it's more. Well, the impulse, the impulse isn't new, but the, the yeah. kind of the, the proliferation of that in everyday life, you know, people taking pictures of what they have for lunch and dinner and everything that they do is I documented. The, yes, I know. And I couldn't care less about this. So, so basically my attitude towards that is this is what I'm hoping to impart to my children, you know, to basically say, look, obviously you can do whatever you want, but you know, 
don't think that you know, you'll be popular with me if you do this. Oh, I cannot wait to have that catch-up conversation with the good doctor about five years from now. Well, he's been with us every week as we've explored the impact of scams on its victims, and we couldn't finish this series without some very direct advice from Dr. Moditz. Using everything he's learned through several years of arduous research at Cambridge University on how to ensure that we are never, ever scammed. It's simple not to be ever scammed. It's very simple. Basically, essentially what you need to do is do not ever use any electronic devices. Do not use currency. Just, you know, buy from people face to face and exchange goods with goods. And you will not be scammed. You know, and and, and none of us do this, of course. It's obvious because it's inconvenient. But uh aha, so this is not now not about protecting yourself, but about protecting your convenience. Right. Right. So it's so we're now balancing risk versus convenience. If you see what I mean. So it's a calculation. So, okay, so it's convenient for me to use online banking. However, that increases the risk of me being defrauded. But it might still, you know, I I might still be fine with that risk, right? Right. Because it's more convenient for me. So um, it's not like you have no choice. You see, you have a choice, but we all choose that, you know, we we want, you know, we want, uh, we want, um, you know, we want to take it because it's too inconvenient. So there you have it. The inconvenient truth. Pass me the garden shears. I'm going for the broadband cable. Well, That's it for episode four. And in fact, for this series of podcasts, if you'd like to leave a review of the podcast on iTunes, we'd very much appreciate that. Or why not introduce a friend to this podcast or just generally to the warm audio bath that is plugging into a podcast. I'm obsessed with them. But if this is your first foray, there is a world of podcasts out there on every conceivable topic. All you have to do is decide, download and enjoy on your commute in the gym or, as I often do, in the kitchen making the tea. Though it is sometimes hard to hear over the beeping of the microwave and the smoke alarm. Thanks to all our courageous contributors and generous guests. Special thanks to Dr David Bodditz for his weekly input and to the Royal Bank of Scotland for their support of the Stopping Scotland Scammers podcast. Don't forget there's a tonne of advice and information on how to protect yourself from scams at the Royal Bank's online security centre, which you can access at personal.rbs.co.uk. And finally, thanks to you for listening. I'm Jackie Brambles, and this has been a Broadstance Media production.